That's the sound of passion and hurt built up over generations. Treaty settlements. They've been going on for decades and they're still ongoing. It's been a process fraught with tension. Willie, this is happening all over the country though, isn't it? Tribes are having to, to settle... Even though it's not really well, what well, they want, I, they're still going to have to settle well, well, in order for them the, to move on. The, no, you, we don't have to settle. Why do no, we have no, to settle? Wait, wait, hold on, can, can I just come in here? Um, look, her frustration is the frustration of a lot of our people. Mm. And there are all sorts of opinions. During the election campaign, now elected councillor Andrew Hollis posted on social media that the treaty is a joke and that there is a need to stop the iwi gravy train. There is a general feeling out in, in around New Zealand where every generation or so there's another group that stand up and say our forefathers didn't get a, a good enough deal through the treaty. So why are treaty settlements so important? And what are Iwi doing with the money that is actually changing lives for the better? Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail I trace the journey of one Iwi, their history and scars. We are landless in our own land and to lose this last bit of ground uh, would be uh, a death blow to the mana, to the honour and to the dignity of the Ngāti Whātua people. And just what has happened since Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke signed their final settlement in 2011. For a start, more than $4 million paid out to members for a savings programme and another $4 million for health insurance. And I guess it, it cuts to the heart of why we exist. You know, we exist for the well-being of our whānau. That's Jamie Sinclair, the chief executive of the Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke Trust. Today the iwi has a whole range of different programmes to support whānau, everything from education grants to starting up businesses. I asked Jamie what programme he's the most proud of. I think for me it would have to be the Toy Order programme, which is our health insurance programme. Uh, that is, a, you know, it's a universal health insurance programme, so we, we pay um, the premium for all, all members, all registered members. That was born out of a recognition that um, Māori, you know, they're at the wrong end of all of those health statistics. Yeah. They're, uh, they're chronically underinsured as well. So access to quality health care was not something that was there for a lot of our whānau. So making that available was, for me, a, a really, really positive step. Um, and I remember the day that it went live, um, I got a phone call from some komatua who told me, you know, it's so amazing, I'm going to go and have my operation next week for my hip. And, uh, you know, and so I saw them a few weeks later and, and they were bouncing around like, you know, a 25-year-old. <laughs> so it was wonderful to see that, that life-changing experience, that, that just that focus on access to health. But the way we did it was, I think, really the beauty of it is that we, we made sure that whānau was supported through that process of obtaining the insurance because it can be quite scary, you know, like, oh... And super confusing. Confusing. Oh, which forms do I fill out? Yeah. How do I claim it back? Do I have to pay? How do I do... So we had a whānau member, actually, who was employed by um, NIB, the provider, um, but worked solely with our whānau to navigate them through um, the process which was amazing because, you know, they had someone they knew, they trusted, that could walk them through step by step and they didn't have to try and figure it out or go through a corporate machine to try and 
get to the help desk or whatever. Mm. You know, there's always new initiatives. Um, the glasses, all of a sudden I was up at Oraki and everyone had glasses on. It's <laughs> like, okay, there must have been a, you know, a, a new uh, arrangement with uh, the health providers. So sure enough, it was. And, and that's great. You know, it empowers people to take control of their health. And more than that, we're, we're asking whānau also to, to, as part of that process, to share with us their, their health concerns, their health issues, how they're feeling, so that we can actually target some more of our uh, interventions, you know, um, because often uh, health insurance, you're dealing with something that's happened, you know, or an issue or an illness right, yeah. that you have. We want to obviously get to the prevention end of that spectrum, and uh, that is where that information gathering um, is really useful because we can kind of figure out what are the most chronic issues that we have and what areas um, and how do we sort of make our programs a bit more targeted to to work at that end of the spectrum, not just in the insurance space. It's been labelled a health crisis. Now the Waitangi Tribunal has begun hearing from 200 claimants who say the health system is failing Māori. Māori are twice as likely to die from advanced cancer. It's a hard, hard truth and it's one that has gone ignored in this country for what seems like decades. Māori do not get the same outcomes as Pākehā. Statistics in this country show again and again that Māori suffer uh, from worse health care than other New Zealanders. Was this really born out of the fact that you, you mentioned before, you like Māori statistics and that kind of thing, yeah. but the fact that you guys didn't want to wait to have to rely on the government to, to do something about this? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, you know, I think it's been well documented, the, I guess, the failings, if you like, of the, of the health system to address Māori need and Māori uh, health. So, and we knew um, change would take a long time and we, we didn't want to wait um, and we were in the position where we were able to do something. So for us, that was that was something we could do quickly, acknowledging that there was all the wraparound services around that program. Mm. So it's again, it's not just about the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. It's also about encouraging healthy lifestyles, encouraging um, preventative measures. Uh, we can't wait, you know. Not that we want to let the government off the hook in terms of their responsibility yeah. to Māori because that is essential. You know, they are a treaty partner. They have obligations to to uplift all people, um, including, of course, um, Māori. So, uh, but nevertheless, it's something we could do, and, and I'm very proud that we did it. They also have a savings scheme called Toi Tupu. Every year, registered members get a dividend from the iwi that goes straight into a ring-fenced savings account. So far, Ngāti Whātua Ōraike has given out more than $4 million. We make uh, annual deposits to Fano, but those deposits actually, they come from the trust, but they actually stay within our commercial entity Whairawa, earning better than um, market interest rates. So what that means is effectively we've got Fano who have got investments in our own business. It's a good conduit for us to talk to Fano about their business so they can understand what we do and, and how we make money and, and how we protect our assets. And there's limits on when they can access those funds too. So um, you can't access them till you're 18 if you're young. And, um, and if you're older, there are certain circumstances around financial hardship, etc., that you can pull them out. So obviously, Fano, knowing that there was a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of savings there, um, because it had been running for a few years before the mm. COVID hit, um, was a comfort. We have noticed an increase in um, requests for that to be paid out to cover 
what we know is going to be a challenging period over yeah. the next few years. And how has the iwi navigated through COVID-19? Yeah, how yeah. has that been? We were connecting with Farno very quickly, so we'd ring them. We rang them as soon as the, the crisis began evolving and we moved towards this serious lockdown situation, making sure they were well. We, we conducted a survey of all Farno. We prepared kai packs. We distributed thousands of kai packs to our Farno over the course of um, five or six weeks. We distributed hygiene packs because we knew there might be access issues. Mm. We maintained our essential services with our health um, clinic. We had an ongoing helpline for Farno who wanted to reach out to us. We connected with other iwi who were doing similar things across the country. So the response I say, I would say Māori in general or iwi, uh, probably exemplar. We'll get back to the impact of COVID on the iwi later. But first, what is the Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke story? And how did they get into a position where they could give away millions of dollars to Fano? To understand that, we have to talk about central Auckland – and we also have to turn the clock back 180 years. In 1840, its chief, Te Kawo, invited Governor Hobson to establish the new capital city of Auckland on 3,000 acres of the tribe's area. Te Kawo hoped this generous gesture would safeguard the rest of his iwi's land. However, by the 1850s, most of Ngāti Whātua's land in Auckland had gone. We had no knowledge of uh, Pākehā capitalism, Pākehā ideas of um, land tenure and, and, and alienation. We had our culture, which was the only way you lost land was through war. And um, we hadn't been in a war and we still haven't been in a war. That's Ngāri Blair, the Deputy Chairperson for Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke Trust, his ancestor, Te Rewiti, led that delegation to the top British official at the time, Governor Hobson, to make an alliance. At the time, iwi boundaries covered the land between the Fo and Tamaki rivers, basically all of central Auckland, plus shared ownership of the North Shore. Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke offered Governor Hobson 3,000 acres, or 1,200 hectares, under what is known as tuku whenua, use rights of the land. It was given as a gift for allies to use for however long they wanted, but there was always an expectation it would be returned to iwi. That's what we thought the Pākehā understood, but clearly they had different ideas, which was we had transacted the land and our interests and rights in it forever and ever, and alienated forever and ever. And the few gold sovereigns, uh, pounds of wheat, saddles, spades, shirts and pounds of tobacco that were given at the ceremony uh, was the payment for the land. We say, well, that was not the payment, that was the koha that you bring to a ceremony to acknowledge the new relationship. We brought the land to the deal, to the relationship. They brought um, on the day a few nice material items which were well-received, and um, everyone walked away thinking they had the most amazing deal ever. They had no money, the settler government. Britain sent no money, whatever. So how do they administer the country? Answer, buy land on the cheap from Maori and on sell at a profit. So the Auckland Isthmus, where Ngāti Whātua Araka is, and bought for £200, 3,000 acres. 90 acres sold within nine months for £24,000. Even our most successful entrepreneurial speculators would find that a very good deal. 
and so it continued. Tens of thousands of hectares of land gone and in the hands of the Crown. By 1855, Ngāti Whātua Ōrākei only had 700 acres of land left. That's 283 hectares, an area that included Bastion Point. But even that was lost. While Bastion Point was sleeping this morning, the police were on the move. They came in army trucks from the Air Force and Navy barracks they'd occupied overnight. A massive series of convoys that looked more like a scene from a World War II movie than a police action against Maori protesters. I am George McMillan, the Commissioner of Crown Land for this district. This place is Crown Land. I have the lawful authority and duty to prevent unlawful trespassing or intrusion upon or occupation of this place. The protest at Bastion Point woke the rest of New Zealand to the loss Māori faced at the hands of the Crown. In 1987, that area, known as the Ōrāke Block, was returned to Iwi. The Crown apologised and paid $3 million as compensation. Importantly with that settlement, it was about returning the land uh, in one single title to be managed by a trust um, of elected people. And that was about restoring, using the Pākehā law to restore our communal principle. The land wouldn't come back into individual shares and interest of that family, or that family member, or that favourite grandchild. Which just happens a lot with um, so-called Māori land across the country. Mm. Most un-Māori way of hold, uh, holding Māori land. Um, we don't do it like that at all. Um, and so that was a key principle for that settlement. The rest of Auckland, uh, which we settled some years later, it was mainly about um, restoring the mana of the Crown in our eyes. The government says it righted past wrongs with the signing of a comprehensive Treaty of Waitangi settlement with Auckland's largest hapu. Ngāti Whātua Oaraki were rendered virtually landless from as early as the 1840s, and with landlessness came marginalisation. He explained how the hapu would be compensated. The quantum of that settlement is $18 million, $2 million of which was received in 1993 on account. It's taken a long number of years to 2011, nearly 20 years to get to the final redress. Uh, we have remained uh, peaceful despite everything thrown at us. We lost everything, need a quarter of an acre left, um, yeah. but we never picked up the gun once. So um, the settlement was... For wider Auckland was really wanting the Crown to understand how we feel about that relationship, despite um, the Crown often forgetting the past. So we spent a lot of time, and particularly led by Sir Hugh Kafaru, um, on writing the longest agreed historical account in any modern treaty settlement to really lay out that story, that history. Uh, as Sir Hugh would say, the Crown must know and understand why it is apologising. Mm. You know, not go through the motions and and uh, say sorry and uh, unreservedly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How did it feel to finally be able to sign that and be able to resolve that as much as possible? It was monumental, it was momentous, all of those words, um, to be able to open a new chapter 
in as much as we could close that one. There are perhaps two popular but incorrect ideas about treaty settlements. Firstly, that iwi have received too much money. In reality, only $2.4 billion nationwide has been paid out over the last 30 years. In just the last financial year, total government revenue was nearly $120 billion. Secondly, that iwi are given hundreds of hectares of land. Most of the time, they're only given the right to buy the land back, and that was certainly the case for Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke. Through those rights, they paid the Crown for different areas on the North Shore. The only land given back to Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke was the Pōrewa Creek Reserve, and that's still a public park. It's just that the iwi is responsible for overseeing it. You know, I've run into councillors to this day on the North Shore. They'll say, oh, you know that land you got given back on the North Shore is... What, the land we paid $110 million for? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we have uh, four banks and they all, offer, they all invite us to the rugby and the cricket and, and so on. Because <laughs> we're good customers. Yeah, yeah. We bought that land back. After that final settlement in 2011... Jamie Sinclair says the iwi had to regroup and reorganise. That was really important, getting the right people and capability on board, um, building up trust with the whānau so they knew why we existed, that we were here for them, that we were here to support them. A big part of that is communication for us. It was about going out, reaching whānau, talking to them, understanding their needs, concerns. So setting up all of those ways in which we can connect... And today, Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke is thriving. It has about 5,500 members, the majority of whom live in New Zealand, but there are also whānau in Australia and other parts of the world. Through making smart investments and developments, Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke assets are now worth $1.25 billion. And those profits are going back to helping people like iwi member Shahzaya Salim. I asked the mother of two young children how her lockdown has been. I think the first two weeks it was really trying to like navigate the space um, so we could all stay in the house comfortably. And because the workload had increased over that period of time, because um, I work for Ngāti Whātua as well, mm-hmm. I was tasked with um, managing the distribution of 1,100 education packs for all of our descendants throughout New Zealand and Australia I was working like tirelessly I was working from 8am to 3am So while others were waiting on education packs from the government, whānau from Ngāti Whātua Ōrāke already had theirs and in the second lockdown there was more support We got hōtoke hampers which are um, winter packs that included all the winter essentials like Vicks you know, uh, what else was in there? The inhalers, the cough drops, blankets, yeah, and just and vouchers to purchase food, you know, um, to alleviate that stress. And for Shazaya Salim personally, health insurance is a big weight off her shoulders. She also receives education grants as a studying mum, and her Fano is a part of the housing program. We're fortunate right. enough to be renting one of the Ngāti Whātuarake houses, and um. When we think of Ōrāke, when we think of the rental prices in Auckland, we already know immediately that that, um, the cost for rent in Ōrāke is ridiculous. And Mm. unless you want to, like, cut your left arm off and um, 
eat noodles every day. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to be able to afford it, Completely right? Completely unattainable. Exactly, exactly that. So um, Ngāti Whātuarake have a housing programme as well um, that supports whānau who are looking um, to rent um, and then move into home ownership. So then with all of this support, how does that make you feel when you look into your future? Particularly, you know, we are under the shadow of COVID-19 and will be for a very long time. We know that the effects of COVID will be the most drastic for Māori. Mm. And it makes me nervous for when, when my babies have babies, you know. But Ngāi Te okay, I have a lot of relationships with all different types of people, and um, especially in that employment space and the education space. It's massive, really. There is a support mechanism in there that I know that will help us through. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpool and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Nati Fato Orake and special thanks to Shah Zaya Salim, Lani Mublair and Jamie Sinclair. Matewa. Te